I learned a long time ago, when you're a pastor and you have to use the restroom when you're mic'd, unplug it. <laughs> you're welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you all. Uh, big shout out to everyone up at DeForest and those of you in the chapel. Man, it's great to be with you. Uh, if you're with us online, Facebook or YouTube or wherever you live on the internet, man, it's great to be with you. We're going to jump right into Acts chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and uh, grab it. Um, Acts chapter 18. And as you turn there, let me just catch up with my football fans. Anyone excited about the Super Bowl? Like three people, I know, I know, and yet somehow it's this, it's the, this national holiday still, right? It feels like, I don't know, junk food Thanksgiving or something, something like that. I actually had a, an interesting um, Super Bowl tidbit. You know, you heard that Tom Brady, sorry, you see, like, you see you football people who are not football people. Uh, you don't know who I'm talking about. Tom Brady, he is, you know, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, if not the greatest. So he just retired again for the second time, right? He has two retirements. He has, he has more retirements than Aaron Rodgers has Super Bowls. So I just want to <laughs> point that out as we uh, get, all right, right, right foot. We're on the right foot here. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. <laughs> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So these opening verses of Acts chapter 18 gives us two scenes. Scene one, Paul on a salt-stained bench on a ship, rocking in the waves, sailing slowly to Corinth. Uh, he's shivering under his thin coat, which is already soaked by sea spray. His head is in his hands. He's exhausted. He's hanging by a thread. He, he, there are passengers sitting next to him, but he is utterly Alone, And you can just see the weight of this second missionary journey, the, the meager effectiveness of it, the constant relational tension of it, the constant uh, being kicked out of, of every city he's visited, being beaten, being mocked and, and shrugged off. is just weighing on him and he's hanging by a thread. The other scene is in Rome. The year is about uh, 49 AD, Priscilla has just uh, cleaned up the shops, uh, the, his shop, and put the tools away, and he goes into the kitchen to kiss his wife, uh, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, this Christian couple living in Rome, and they, they sit down uh, over a simple meal, uh, a hard wooden table, and they join hands, and they give thanks to God, and suddenly there's a bang at the door. Bam, bam, bam! He goes to the door and there's a grisly looking centurion with a sword looming over him with a, an imperial memo. It says, all Jewish filth must vacate the city by nightfall. Any delay will be counted as treason and you will be killed. So Aquila and Priscilla joined the throngs of Jewish exiles, victims of a government that considers it more convenient to purge minorities from the city than integrate them. Three exiles, two journeys, one city. 
And the meeting of these three ragged, discouraged travelers in Corinth will not only change the course of their lives, but it'll change the course of history, as we will see. I'm going to show you some pictures of Corinth. Corinth is a place you can visit now. It's largely vacated, but at the time, it was a boomtown. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. There was a lot of commerce and trade. If you wanted to eat the best food, go to the best shops, you wanted to do all the best things in a city, you would go to Corinth. Corinth uh, was uh, like Madison in that it was an isthmus town. So it was a thin tract of land surrounded by the Adriatic and the Adrian, um, Aegean Sea. And uh, shipping captains, instead of going all the way around the, the Greek peninsula, they could shave weeks or, or months even off of their shipping time by docking on the west side of Corinth and hiring slaves to literally drag their ships creaking across the four-mile isthmus to the port on the east side while they went and enjoyed the city. And a shipping captain would come into the city. The historians write about this. They would eat whatever they wanted, drink whatever they wanted. And then once they were good and drunk, they would go up to the Acropolis where there were literally hundreds of sex slaves, many of them children, who were being pimped out by the priests of the demon god Aphrodite to service them and have them on their way. The sexual sin... Uh, that they celebrated in Corinth was so bad that even throughout the Greek-speaking pagan world, they would say of sexual perverts that they have been Corinthianized. And here's Paul and Aquila and Priscilla coming into Corinth. Literally the only Christians in the entire city. And what this gives us, what Acts chapter 18 gives us, well, there's a lot of things. It's a gold mine for, uh, it, it tells us about how Paul wrapped up his second missionary journey. It tells us about this uh, Roman proconsul named Gallus, who he, he ends up being very, very important in terms of the dating of the New Testament. If you ever have any questions about how do we know the Bible's not just made up? Just read about what historians write about Gallus and Luke the historian. Uh, it also, we were introduced later in the chapter to this gifted young African preacher named Apollos who gets mentored by Aquila and Priscilla and is a, a great help to the church. He shows up later in the Bible. But what we're going to focus on today is how in cha Acts chapter 18, we see these three exiles, these three godly people who have been brought by God to the most ungodly place in the world. Because this, this is what God does. He brings his people to ungodly places. He might have brought you to an ungodly place. I mean, think about it. Paul and Aquila and Priscilla were going to be the only Christians in Corinth, and sometimes, if you think about it, you feel like the only Christian in your dorm room, the only one among your friends who takes the Bible seriously. You might feel like the only Christian parent on your kid's basketball team that doesn't do tournaments on Sundays. You might feel like the only Christian conservative who cares about black history. You might be the only Christian liberal or Democrat who cares and is concerned about eight-year-olds changing their gender. You might be the only Christian in your family who doesn't laugh at racist jokes. You might be the only Christian on your job site that doesn't get wasted every weekend. You might be the only Christian in your marriage who believes that the vows you took before God matter. 
godly people are called to ungodly places. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the very uh, first page of this incredible book, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, look, be my witnesses. Literally, that means martyrs to the end of the earth. And so when you become a Christian, in, in one very important sense, it's like coming home to God. But in another very important sense, it's becoming an exile in your own home. If you're a Christian, you are going to feel out of place. You're going to feel like you're living out of a moral suitcase. You're going to feel, just like Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, alone at times, discouraged, frustrated, exhausted, and tempted to give up. But don't. But don't. What we're going to see here is when God calls us to be the church, he calls us to be the church outside the church. Be the church outside the church. How? Where do we start? Well, Acts chapter 18 is an encouraging word for Christians who are hanging by a thread in Corinth. Uh, there are, um, there are going to be three places that we'll see we can begin to be the church outside the church. Now we're going to get to the, the first two, then the third one is really the key. That's kind of the, the secret. You need that one in order for the other two to work, but the first two are still very important. And the very first one uh, is really the most obvious place because it's really the, the place where most uh, Christian adults spend most of their time. And I'm not talking about being on hold with T-Mobile. I'm, I'm, talking, about, I'm talking about the place where you work, your job. When we want to learn to be the church outside the church, we start at the place of work. What's interesting here, and we'll see this, is Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, they, what they don't do. Read with me here in verse 3. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So what does he not do? If you've been following Paul, you realize what he normally does is he goes usually into the synagogue and he starts talking with people in the synagogue. But what he does here first, and this is so important, is he sets up a shop and he goes to work. He and Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers. Tent makers. So that's actually a really rare word in ancient Greek. Uh, it's the only time this word shows up in the Bible. Scholars aren't sure exactly what it means, but probably it, it has something to do with working with leather, uh, because leather was one of the primary materials used for tents and awnings and things like that. So they start a small business. They, they you know, take out a little loan. They, they buy the tools they need, the workbench they need, and some animal, animal hides. And, and this is like, tent making is like a blue collar kind of thing. It's nothing too glamorous, uh, but it's a really useful thing. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you can do with, with leather to this day. So you guys know what I did before I was a pastor? <laughs> Other than sin, I've given that up, but... Um, before, before I was a pastor, you guys, you, you don't even know what's coming. I, I used to repair pipe organs. Yeah, I know. You guys are like, that's a thing? 
It's a thing. It's a thing. I used to repair pipe organs. I've got a picture of one here. This is at the uh, University of Minnesota. We worked on this one. Um, it's at the Northrop Performing Arts Center. It's called the Aeolian Skinner Opus 32. It was built in 1932. It took four years to build. What you see here is called the console. It's the command center. It has over 225 pedals and buttons that control the organ. But the sound doesn't come from the console. A pipe organ, if you know anything about them, is the only instrument that's so large it has to be built into the architecture of the building. Uh, and so the sound comes from these chambers that are usually hidden behind screens in the wall. Uh, and, and the sound comes from air flowing through pipes. The, the Aeolian Skinner has 7,000 pipes, some of them the size of a pencil, some as tall as 32 feet. That's why they call pipe organs the king of instruments. It's kind of funny. I remember talking to people um, who complained about electric guitars. They're like, there's too loud. Just bring back the organ. I'm like, have you heard? <laughs> a pipe organ turned up to 11? It's like a freight train. The king of instruments. Now, they're sitting on these holes in these wooden boxes, and the, the boxes are full of pressurized air. There's air constantly being pumped in. And when you push a key at the council, uh, it sends a signal to a little valve under the pipe that opens and lets air through the pipe, making the sound. Isn't that fascinating? And, and what do you think those valves are made of? Leather. They're made of leather. So a lot of the work we did in the shop looked like this. We were using, you know, dowels and, and knives and, and glue to, to, um, to make all these leather valves, thousands of them. And as you picture Paul and Aquila and Priscilla at work, you can kind of picture something like this. They're using awls and oils and animal hides, and they're taking them from the raw material and turning them into something useful, like straps and awnings and shoes, things like that. And it's so interesting, it's so important that they start not with prayer or preaching, and they don't start at the synagogue like they normally do. Those things that you would normally associate with the mission of Jesus, they start with work. And here's why this is important. Work has everything to do with the mission of Jesus when you're in Corinth. Has everything to do with the mission of Jesus when you're in Corinth. Uh, we catch up with some of Paul's theology of work in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Look, being the church outside of the church means do work differently than everybody else. That's important. What you do matters in your job. How you do it matters. Why you do it matters. What you do matters. There's this lie, uh, I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's this idea that uh, there's like spiritual stuff, there's like spiritual work, and it's preaching and teaching and prayer and things like that, and then there's secular work, and the spiritual stuff is more valuable. There's this idea, I think, that we, none of us maybe would say, but we kind of feel that when we get into heaven, all the pastors and missionaries and intervarsity you know, people are going to be getting the penthouses in the kingdom, and all of the nannies and cooks and professionals professors are going to be in the, the, the studio apartments or something like that. I don't know. But, but what you do matters. We have different jobs. Hear me. Different jobs 
The same vocation. Different jobs, but the same vocation. When Paul said, whatever you do, uh, what he was saying is what you do when you go to work matters because you are being the church in that place wherever you go. You might have 20 different jobs over your career, but one vocation. What you do matters. How you do it matters. Paul says, work with all your heart. Put your soul in it. Everyone's being apathetic, be competent. Everyone's cutting corners, don't do that. Everyone's trying to skimp on you know, the benefits for, the, uh, for their hourly employees, pay them well, do work different. How you do it matters. Why you do it matters. When we're being the church outside the church, they're going to be motivated by different things that motivate us. Paul says, uh, don't live and die for the masters uh, the, the workers in Corinth live and die for. You do your work for the master who's lived and died for you. Don't, don't put your family on the line, your health on the line to serve some human master or some next rung in your climb up the corporate ladder. Do it for the Lord. Trusting God as a provider, pleasing your heavenly Father. Why you do work matters. Tomorrow, you're gonna be, you're gonna be driving in, uh, very likely, or maybe logging in to the place where you do your work. It matters. It matters. You're being the church Outside the church. So Paul and, and Aquila and Priscilla, they, they've got the shop going. And for Paul, it's kind of this side hustle. It's how he pays his rent, puts, foods on, puts food on the table to do something else that he is uniquely wired to do. It's going to show us the second place to begin being the church outside the church. It's the place of conversation. The place of conversation. Grab your Bible. Look at uh, verses 4 and five with me. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Commentators say probably what happened is Paul and Silas were uh, like at the church in Philippi. We know from other places in the Bible that the Philippian church gave a big check to Paul to free him up to go into full-time uh, mission, missions work. That's kind of what happened between verses 4 and five. But what we see here is Paul having conversations with people, uh, specifically religious people in the synagogue about, Jew, uh, about Jesus, about Jesus. Now just one note that we just have to like bold and underline is that Paul was talking to religious, spiritual people who weren't Christian. Did you catch that? They were religious, they were probably moral, probably deeply spiritual, but not yet Christian. And we just have to remember that in, in the conversations that we have because we're going to encounter people who say, and we may even be people who say, I'm a good person, I'm a religious person, I go to church, I pray, and, but we're still not a part of God's family. There's a difference between being religious or spiritual and being Christian. And the main difference is this, that religious people believe that they are saved by what they bring to God. I'm a good person, a moral person. Look at me, God. Look, how lucky are you to have me on your team? Versus someone who is a Christian believes that they are saved by what God has brought to them in Christ. 
So he's having these conversations, and they're all about Jesus. And we have to be careful about that because these conversations can go way off the rails. And they can be about some political issue or some ethical issue or some secondary thing, but keep it focused on Jesus. And what do these conversations look like? Well, we see, we saw it in verse 4. It says, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade them. Now, notice what it does not say. It doesn't say that he simply proclaimed the gospel, at least not at first. It's not at first. He reasoned. In, in the Greek, the, that word for reason is very similar to our word for dialogue. Uh, this, is, this is a conversational thing. What's the difference between proclamation and conversation? Two things, very important. Two things. Number one, proclamation is an event where conversation is a process. Proclamation is an event where conversation is a process. Notice Paul was there every Sabbath. That's every Saturday, reasoning uh, in conversation. And most think that sharing the gospel is a one-time thing, maybe a two- or three-time thing. But for the vast, and sometimes it is, sometimes people hear the gospel, respond right away. That's a miracle of the Holy Spirit, and that's great, and we celebrate that. But normally, for the vast amount of you and I, here, we did not believe after hearing the message of Jesus one time, for most of us, it was dozens or perhaps hundreds of conversations with someone we trusted about Jesus. Now, here's a question. Is there anyone that you've, you've talked with them one or two or three times and they haven't responded and you're kind of like, oh, I'm done? Is it possible that you gave up way too early? thinking that sharing the gospel is a one-time event and not a long-term process. Probably conversations in Corinth are going to take way longer than we think. They're probably going to take way longer than we think. Not an event, but a process. Number two, the difference between proclamation and conversation is proclamation is a one-way thing where conversation is a two-way thing. Now imagine a city with only one-way streets. How does that work? That, that's gridlock, right? You, you'll never, you have to go all the way around to just, you know, to get to where you need to go. It just doesn't work. And the same, but that's kind of what we tend to do with gospel conversations. We, th we treat it like a one-way street. What you need is what I have to offer you. You need truth. You need these scriptures. You need these facts. You, and then you just need to make a decision and that's it. But that's not the way it works. Paul reasoned with them. He was persuading them. It has to be a two-way thing. Uh, it, one direction, he's giving truth. He's talking about Jesus. He's expressing care. And the other way, he's hearing their doubts. He's listening to their questions. He's taking uh, their false assumptions and helping them see them in a new light. He's listening to their pain. And you say, you know, so many of us say, I say this too, I don't know how to have these kinds of conversations. They're so hard. Well, do you know how to have a conversation? Do that. Do it in a way that fits you. You can do it. Uh, Randy Newman, who's, uh, he was a, a Jewish man, kind of a secular Jewish guy, who came to Christ and now he writes and teaches about evangelism and apologetics, which is kind of the defense of the, the Bible and the Christian message. And 
Um, he's, he's based out of Washington, D.C. And, and one of the things that he says is that con- we live in a conversation-starved culture where there's so much connectivity and so little conversation that's happening all around us. People want to have deep spiritual conversations, but they have to feel safe in order to have those things. He tells a story about his mom. I mean, his whole family was Jewish, and he would bring Jesus up, and it was like, don't go there, Randy, right? His mom was 72 years old, had absolutely no interest in Jesus whatsoever, shot him down every time he brought it up. But he says he was on the phone with his mom uh, after a neighbor of hers had just died. And this guy was, he, he died angry. You know, just bitter, um, just angry, just like, that, that's, the way, that's the way he lived, that's the way he died. And he was in, on the phone with his mom, and his mom said, well, at least we know he's in a better place. It's a false assumption, isn't it? And Randy, he said he was tempted to proclaim the truth right in that moment. Well, mom, you know what the Bible says? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin and death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But he didn't do that. He, he took the opportunity to ask a question that drew her in to rethink her assumptions. He said, this is so brilliant, so simple. He said, mom, how do you know that? How do you know he's in a better place? (laughs) The the conversation ended right there. (laughs) That's what he said. She hung up and that was it. But she called him later. And she said, Randy, I've decided to read the New Testament. He's like... He says he called his brother. He's like, you'll never guess what happened. Mom's reading the New Testament. He's like, no way. You're lying. No, I'm not lying. Within a year, she had become a Christian. If you want to learn to be the church outside the church, we have to learn to begin in the place of conversation. It's going to take longer than you think, but it's going to be a lot easier than you think. Conversation. Work. Now, those, those make sense and those are doable, but the most important one, the kind of the secret that undergirds all of these others is that if you're going to learn to be the church outside the church, you have to start in a place of rest. The place of rest. You can, you can kind of see Paul in the synagogue if you try. You can see him sitting on the floor, cross-legged, talking with someone. It's late at night. The candle is burning almost down to nothing. And he's pleading with them. He's leaning in. You can just see the love and the patience and the passion. And he's sitting with their doubts and their questions. And then he goes home and he agonizes in prayer over these people. And he comes back with new hope, doing it again and again. But again and again, he shrugged off. And there's, no, there's not a, an inch of response. He's like he's talking to a wall. And some of you are thinking, Brian, that's, that's me. That's me. This isn't some abstract thing for you. This, this, you're saying, this is my child. This is my child who came out of the closet 
And he bought into this ideology that he's nothing more than his desires. And that if he follows his animal instincts, then he's going to discover true joy and freedom. That's my son. And we've loved him. And we've been patient with him. And we've been accepting with him. But the moment we even question or bring up some other thing, some biblical thing, he calls us homophobic bigots and brainwashed. And we're like, who's the one who's been brainwashed? This is me. This is my story. And he's moving in with his boyfriend. And he's walking away from Jesus. And we don't know what to do. You're saying, this is me. This is, this is my marriage. This is my husband. He shrugs when I invite him to church. He thinks I'm stupid for believing in the Bible. And you might be going, this is me. This is my best friend. She grew up in church. She was hurt by, by Christians. She walked away from church. And, and now she's in college and her life is just a mess. And she's drinking and she's hooking up. And you're saying, I've tried and I've prayed and I'm out of hope. You're not alone. Look in verse 6. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. There's Paul. He's been so patient. He's been so kind, so generous, and he just snaps. And he's saying, I've prayed for you and treated me like trash. I have proven this to you over and over, and you laugh at me. I've given everything to you, and you have asked, and, and, and have asked for nothing. Are you happy with your life? You're hopeless. Do you not see that? You're being arrogant. You're being self-righteous. And if you want to go to hell, fine. Have you been there? Have you been there? You just have no more hope? You're just out of compassion? Your love is run dry? You ever been done with someone? Given up? See, most of us, when we're trying to be the church outside the church, we don't give up because the work is hard. No, we give up when we start to believe the lie that what we're doing is meaningless. Psychologists have a word for that. It's called burnout. And we're not going to be the church outside the church for long without, without experiencing this. And what happens, what happened with Paul, this isn't a model for us. This is not a good thing. Paul sins here. What he's starting to do is he's starting to forget and abandon the gospel. When he says your blood is on your head, what he's saying there is your salvation is primarily your responsibility. And it's not because the gospel of Jesus is that the blood of every single sinner, every ungodly person, including us, has been placed on the head of Jesus. And the gospel is that Jesus ultimately is responsible and his spirit ultimately is the only one who can draw a hard, broken, sinful heart back to God. And we have to find rest in that or we're going to die. 
We have to find rest at the cross, remembering the power and the grace and the perseverance and the invincibility of the love of Jesus for people who hate him. We have to find rest. I have no idea where my my notes are. How can we start to be the church outside the church? Well, it has to start in the place of rest. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) What happens next for Paul is really staggering. Look with me, uh, look with me in verse eight. This is so unexpected. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. If you're following along, you're going, this is crazy. Right in the moment Paul gave up on, on these people he was trying to reach, suddenly the Lord does something unthinkable and he, he chooses Crispus the synagogue leader, to believe in him. Not just him, his whole family. I mean, imagine that. You're in Corinth. This is a small Jewish community. They're tight. And suddenly one of the pastors of your synagogue turns and, and, and follows Jesus. And you show up to church the next Sabbath, and there's Crispus and his family, and they don't go to your synagogue. They go next door to Tish's house to do worship there. Just imagine the the pressure, what that, what that feels like. And Paul is shaken. I mean, he's like, oh my gosh, what, what's happening here? And he's, he's lying in his bed at night and he's, he's, uh, he's trembling, he's remembering the power of God. And it says in verse nine, let's look at this. Uh, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. God gives Paul a new vision for how to be the church outside the church. And this is what we have to have. We have to invite God to give us a new vision. And, and you might be saying, Lord, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, everyone's against me. And he says, do not be afraid. And you might be saying, I've tried, I've ha- tried to have these conversations, it's so difficult. And he says, keep on speaking. And we say, I, I, I feel alone, I, I, don't, I don't, like, you're not answering my prayers, where are you, God? I'm the only one in my family who believes in you. And he says, I am with you. And we say, Lord, I'm the only Christian in this circle of friends. How, how is, is my friend supposed to encounter you? No one else in their, their friend circle knows you. And, and God says to us, I have many people in this city. So rest in that. Rest in that. Tomorrow, uh, you're going to wake up and you're going to Get in your car or log in wherever you are, and you're going to go. You're going to go somewhere. And it might as well say wherever you go, welcome to Corinth. 
You're going to be called to be a godly person in an ungodly place. And here's the strengthening and encouraging message from Acts chapter 18. God says, when you go to work, work like it matters because it does. He says, when you encounter people, have conversations that focus on Jesus. It's going to take longer than you think. It's going to be easier than you think. Have good conversations. And don't do it out of this place of striving. Don't do it with this false belief that it's all up to that person because the grace of God is more shockingly powerful than you and I realize. So rest in him. Rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for what you did in Corinth. We're grateful that 2,000 years ago, you started a movement there with three exiles that has persisted to this day. And Lord, we ask, would you do the same here and now? Would you do the same tomorrow when we wake up in Corinth? Would you strengthen those who are weak? Would you calm those who are full of anxiety? Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight to have Jesus-centered conversations everywhere we go? We pray this, Jesus, loving you and trusting you. Amen. Amen.